Well, good morning, everyone. What a privilege we have to gather in God's presence and spend some time in his holy word. So we're thankful for the goodness that we've been able to sing so far this morning, and we rely on that continued goodness as we continue to serve him and in spirit and truth and seek him through his word. Hope you'll take a chance to look at the bulletin one more time and look for opportunities that you can be involved during this week and over the next few weeks. We've got some exciting activities coming up, and we'll certainly look forward to sharing more details as they come to pass. And my wife was sharing with me what a wonderful evening the ladies had on Friday evening. And just want to pay tribute to a beautiful saint. Thank you, Gail, for sharing so well with the women and showing us how we can have hope in a good and sovereign God. Thank you for your ministry. In his book, A Call to Excellence, Gary Endrig shares a story that gives us insight into the life and legacy of the late D.L. Moody, the great evangelist of 100 years ago. As Ingrid tells the story, in the late 1800s, a large group of European pastors had come to one of Moody's Bible conferences held in Northfield, Massachusetts. And following the European custom of that day, each guest put his shoes outside his room to be cleaned by the hall servants overnight. Well, that may have been the custom in Europe, but this was America, and there were no hall servants. And while walking the dormitory halls, Moody saw the shoes lined up out in the hallway and was determined not to embarrass his brothers. He mentioned the need to some of the ministerial students that were there, but he was met with silence or pious excuses. So not wanting to embarrass his guests, Moody returned to the dorm, gathered up all the shoes, and alone in his room, this famous evangelist began to clean and polish all of the shoes. Only the unexpected arrival of a friend in the midst of the work revealed the secret. When the foreign visitors opened their doors the next morning, their shoes were shined, and they never knew by whom. Moody had told no one, but his friend who had caught him did. Soon during the conference, word got out, and different men quietly volunteered to shine the shoes each night during the conference. Moody was a man with a servant's heart, and that was at least part of the basis for his great service to our God. Servanthood and sacrifice are two things that set the Christian message apart from any other. At its root, Christianity is the story of an almighty God who stoops to the level of those he created, sends his son to serve and live among them for 30 years and to die for their sins, so that by faith in Christ, these same ones can be lifted up into a right relationship with God. And though knowing this to be the case and having the example of it in Scripture and knowing that Jesus modeled this for his own, church history tells us that Christians have found it difficult to apply these principles in their own lives. And so our passage this morning is important in understanding not only what Jesus came to do for his people, but how they are to live as a result of what Jesus has done, as a result of encountering the living God by faith and how he would have us live as a result. 
Well, with that as our introduction, I invite you to stand as we read our passage for this morning. Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28. And the precious word of God tells us, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and who would ever be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord given to us to teach us important lessons on servanthood. May he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Please be seated. And let us pray. Our Father and our God, we've just thanked you that you are the one that we adore. You are the one our hearts hunger for. And so, Father, we have come today into this place expectant to hear from you and from your word and to be touched by your mercy and grace. And so, in this holy moment, Father, we bow our hearts before you. And we ask that you would turn our hearts and minds to you and to your word, that you would banish all distractions, that we would know that we have met with you this morning. And as we walk away from this place, we know that we will have been changed and have the privilege to continue walking with you. So in these moments, Father, guide us as our teacher by your Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Good morning to those of you joining us online. Thank you for taking this time to join us. We might wish that you would be here with us, but we know there are circumstances that do not allow it. So thank you for setting aside time, and wherever you find yourself, please turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew 20 and join us as we study God's Word together. Well, in the previous passages in Matthew, we have seen that Jesus has talked to us about the generosity of God, this generosity that is lavishly given by grace to all who come to Christ, whether in the first hour or in the 11th hour. And as a result, then, Jesus reminds us not to begrudge God for his generosity. When we see him blessing and giving gifts and honoring others in ways that perhaps he has not yet done for us. As Jesus reminds us several times over these past several chapters, the math of heaven is different than the math of earth. For in the kingdom of heaven, it is the last who will be first and the first will be last. 
And to show us how this would take place, as we saw last week, Jesus said that he was going to Jerusalem. He took his disciples aside, these throngs that are on their way to the feast, that are on their road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And he takes his disciples aside. And he says what's going to happen when they get there. There will be this double betrayal of Jesus, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. And he he will be mocked and beaten and killed. He will be condemned so that the people of God will not be condemned. But he will not remain dead. He will rise from the grave on the third day to show that he has conquered over sin and death, the devil, and the rebellious hearts of us all. And the larger context of this teaching was to explain, in part, the nature of rewards in Christian service. And Jesus said there are rewards in following him, but that they're given according to the wisdom and generosity of the Lord, not according to human calculations. And so we're reminded not to seek great things for ourselves, but to seek the glory of God and to seek his will and way and to walk in his ways. But that simple truth of these rewards that will come, but first we'll have a Savior that is going to go to Jerusalem and die and show us what servanthood looks like and what sacrifice looks like. That simple truth was interrupted by an unusual encounter as we see our passage this morning. And as we begin, I encourage you to turn to your sermon outlines if you've not already or to the church app as we get to our first major point, which is an audacious request. An audacious request. And our text begins. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with two sons. These sons are James and John. And if we do a comparison with the parallel stories in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that the woman who has come up to Jesus is named Salome. Salome is the sister of Mary, who's the mother of Jesus. So that means then that this Salome would be the aunt of Jesus, and James and John would be his cousins. I think that certainly adds some color to the connections and narratives that we see in the gospel stories. It certainly adds some color and an interest to the story that we are looking at this morning. And so Salome comes to Jesus, but she's going to learn a lesson that Mary, even Mary, the mother of Jesus, had to learn. Over in John chapter 2, Mary, the mother of Jesus, had to learn that she had to come to Jesus as a disciple and not as a mother as Jesus reminds her that he's working under the control of the Father. Salome has to learn a similar lesson. She might be family. She might be the aunt. Family in a human sense. But the family of God takes a higher priority. And as we read carefully through the different accounts of the Gospels, we find this is not the only time that women are mentioned as being associated with the disciples. We even have the names of some in Luke, that at times as Jesus was moving and teaching, that crowds of women would have come along. And in Luke 8, it says even some of them provided out of their own financial means to take care of the needs of Jesus and the disciples. And keep in mind, this is a feast. This is one of the major feasts where the Jews had to go up to Jerusalem. So crowds and crowds of people are going, and it would not be uncommon then that there would be some women and even some of the family members of the disciples. And we certainly have one example with Salome. Now, we don't know much about her, other than that she was a follower of the Savior. And she comes to Jesus with a request. She knew and she had seen that Jesus had called her son to follow him. And as a mother, she would be looking out for their interest and their welfare. Maybe she's leaning on some type of insider influence as she comes to Jesus. 
We need to remember that Jesus was truly human, fully human. He had real human relationships. He had a real human family. He had siblings. He engaged in real human dialogue and interaction with friends and with even his enemies. He was truly human, like us in all ways, except he never knew sin. And so there's human drama to these stories as we study how Jesus interacts with those around him. But she comes and kneeling before him, she asks for something, kneeling, of course, being a posture of reverence and respect and honor, faith even, as we will see momentarily. This should stir our imaginations, for we've seen similar events in the Gospel of Matthew. We've seen a leper who comes up and kneels before the Lord. We've seen a man with a sick daughter who comes and kneels before the Lord. We've seen a rich young ruler who runs up to Jesus and says, what must I do? Two blind men that kneel before him and ask for their sight to be restored. And so we have a similar event where someone runs up to Jesus and is asking for a favor. In this case, not for herself, but for someone else. And so Jesus said to her, what do you want? Now, what's she going to ask for at this point? Her sons have gone off to follow Jesus. They've gone on this different trek. They've been up to Galilee for a long time, and now they've come back from Galilee, and they're down in Judea, and they've heard of Jesus and his miracles and his teachings. Is she going to ask for a miracle herself? Is she going to ask for a type of blessing? Is she going to ask for some provision? Is she going to ask for an answer to prayer? It becomes very clear she has something very different on her mind. She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. So Jesus says, what do you want? And she says, I want future glory for my sons. I want them to have prestige and power and influence and importance. Now, as parents, we understand that to a certain level. We want our parents to succeed. We want our parents to have our children to have opportunities. We, we take pride in what they accomplish and what they do. But I think at any level we have to agree that this is, this is quite a request for success and prestige. Give one of my sons to sit at your right hand and the other to sit at your left in your kingdom. We know that in Scripture, sitting at the right hand was typically the, the place of honor next to the king. But concerning royalty, concerning all things dealing in reigning and, and ruling, sitting at the left hand was a good place as well. So she's asking that her sons be given the two highest places in the kingdom after the king himself. I think we would agree that's a rather audacious request. So what are we to make of it? Well, first, let's recognize her faith. She believes that the kingdom will come. She believes that Jesus will be king, that Jesus is the victor, that the kingdom of heaven will come. She's so confident that it's coming, she wants to make preparations for it. So as one commentator says, it, it's a selfish question, but it is a believer's question because they do believe that Jesus will reign. Now, that's the good news. She shows a measure of faith. The bad news, of course, is that it's misguided. She's more concerned about the future glory of her sons than the future glory of her Savior. And I think there then is one of the first challenges we find as we come to this text this morning. The warning against self-seeking, of seeking attention and glory and honor and prestige. For you see, it's the, the mark of the Christian who has been touched by the grace of God to want to seek first the kingdom of God in all things. 
to glorify God in all things and not seek great things for himself. But if we look at the context in which Jesus has been teaching here, this is a shocking request. It's true, Jesus has promised rewards for those who will follow him. And there was even a mention of sitting on thrones. And if that's the case, Salome thought she wants her sons to have the best of the thrones. She wants to set them up for a really good future. But it's an audacious request. So next we see an arduous cup. An arduous cup. Just think of how out of tune this request is for what Jesus has been saying. To the rich young man, he had just said, you must give it all up and become completely dependent like a child, having faith in, in the Father to provide for you. And it's that childlike faith that will bring you into the kingdom of heaven. It's only that faith that allows you to enter the kingdom of heaven. To Peter, he says, there'll be rewards, but don't seek them for yourself. Seek the glory of my name and my kingdom. Be happy if I bless others. Enter into their joy if they have blessings and honor that you have not received. And so here he has a similar retort then for this request. Verse 22. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to, to drink the cup that I am to drink? Remember, Jesus has just been teaching about going to Jerusalem. Where he will suffer and die. He's going to be the son of man who will be humiliated and beaten and whipped in front of the crowds and hung on a cross hanging between heaven and earth and die. It's a scene of ignominy and suffering and humiliation. And it's in that context that one of these mothers runs up and says, oh, by the way, Jesus, I want my sons to have a really good space in the kingdom of heaven. Remember, they've already argued about who would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus has to remind them of what greatness looks like. And he's going to do it again in this passage. What greatness looks like in the kingdom of heaven is to take the lower position, not to seek the higher one. Now, in the original language, there's a clear shift here from the mother to the sons. And... The Greek allows you to do things that unfortunately English doesn't, and that is you can differentiate between you in the singular sense and you in the plural sense. And here it very clearly is you in the plural sense. Jesus is turning from the mother to the sons. Certainly they were in on what was happening. Certainly there had been a conversation that had taken place before this. Maybe they had been watching what Jesus said to Peter. Thought, oh, maybe this is our opportunity. We don't know. We just know that Jesus is turning He's, he's heard the question. He's turning his attention to James and to John. And I think it reminds us that once again, as we have tracked with the disciples over the past several chapters, as Jesus has been showing his goodness, his grace, his mercy, his kingship, and the fact that he will suffer, that the apostles were getting pretty good at missing the point. They were so absorbed in their personal self-importance and what they were going to get and what they thought they might even deserve because of their service in the kingdom, that they missed the main point of what Jesus was saying. He's talking about suffering. They're thinking about success. So Jesus says to them that they have no idea what they are asking. Will you indeed drink the cup that I am to drink? And so what is this cup? Well, in brief, it's the cup of suffering for the sake of the gospel. At times in the Old Testament, there is a sign of cup that is a sign of blessing. But more often than not, the cup 
represents the wrath of God's judgment against sin. Let's look at a couple of examples. In Jeremiah chapter 25, the prophet has been given a message to pronounce judgment on the nations, and listen to what he is told to say in Jeremiah 25, 15 and 16. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Clearly, drinking the cup in this context is drinking the cup of judgment. And Ezekiel 23, as the prophet is exhorting the two nations of Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, he's in this case rebuking Judah because they didn't pay attention to what had already happened to the northern kingdom. And as God is giving his sign of judgment in Ezekiel 23, he says this, Thus says the Lord God, You shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held to derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. This was a judgment pronounced on Judah, the people of God. For our purposes, one more example will be given just to show that this is the case. In Psalm 75, the nations are said that they will drink the cup concerning the foaming wine of judgment of God. And in Psalm 75, verses 7 and 8, it says, But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For it is the hand of the Lord, in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Powerful signs of judgment. This cup that must be drunk to show God's wrath against sin and judgment. The cup that Jesus will have to drink is not an easy one. It means he will have to experience suffering and sorrow and trials. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he contemplates what is coming before him, he even asks that the cup be taken away. But he says, nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. And it's because he did the Father's will that we can have hope. That cup of wrath that Jesus had to endure he endured on behalf of the people of God. And so think about it. What was in that cup? All of our sins. All of our lies. All of our anger and lust and jealousy and pride and stubbornness and foolishness and silliness and pettiness. All of that was in that cup that he would have to drink to pay for our sins. He would drink the cup that would cause God's wrath against our sin to pour down upon him. And so he turns to the two sons of Zebedee and he says, will you drink this cup? It's going to be a cup of suffering. You want to follow me? Take up your cross and die. Go with me through the trials and the tribulations and opposition. No student will be above his teacher, Jesus said. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they've hated me, they will hate you. If they've killed me, they might even kill you. Are you willing to go through that with me? Can you drink the cup? He's making it clear to them that the ways of the kingdom of heaven now is, is a path of lowliness, perhaps loneliness, suffering, rejection, being an outcast, maybe even death. All that so that at the end, as we enter into the presence of God, we will be received and rewarded 
why Paul, as he was in his missionary journeys in Acts 14, said, it is through many trials that we must go to enter the kingdom of heaven. The way of the cross is a tough way. And one would think that if these two sons really knew what they were getting into, they would have run away. So it's probably the case that they're not fully realizing what they are saying yes to, but they do say to him, we are able. They're still thinking about that higher place. They're still thinking about success and reward when Jesus is talking about suffering and persecution. They wanted the glory of the kingdom without the trials needed to get there. They still need to learn what the early church learned and taught. No cross, no crown. But they said, yes, we are able. And we'll see in, in due time that they were not able because when it came time for the arrest of Jesus in the beginning of his trials, they fled. Well, Jesus knows that they're not yet fully aware. Thankfully, Jesus is kind and compassionate, even with his apostles, and we see that he is helping them to grow in their faith all throughout the gospel accounts. And so he accepts their response, and then listen to the promise he gives to them. Though he knows they don't fully understand it yet, he says, you will drink my cup. It's quite a promise. But he's already promised it to all who would follow Christ. He says, on this side of heaven, those who follow Jesus in the way of the cross will suffer. And that promise still goes out to all who follow Christ. None of us are promised a bed of ease in Zion. None of us are promised that we'll just skate through this life without difficulty. No, in fact, it's the opposite of what we're promised. Jesus promised that his followers will endure hardships, misunderstandings, mockeries, sufferings, maybe even punishment and death. And thousands of Christians around the world at this very moment testify that that is still the case as they languish in prisons. If anyone promises you something different, they're not preaching the gospel of Christ, and they are to be ignored. There are rewards for following Christ, but most of them are mainly for later when we're in the, his holy presence in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus said, you will drink my cup. And what happened to them? Well, James was killed by King Herod in Acts chapter 2 for his faithfulness to Christ. It was an act that so pleased the early apostles that he went and preached. Peter in jail and it took God's miraculous deliverance of Peter or he would have followed the same fate though he was executed for his faith decades later John for his part did live a long life of many imprisonments beatings being exiled to an abandoned island from where he wrote the book of Revelation he had to endure years of persecution and suffering before he died James and John did drink of the cup just as Jesus promised that they would. They just didn't know what it meant at the time when he asked the question. But after he gives that promise, you will drink my cup, he then says, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Jesus affirms that it's not up to him to choose who will sit at his right hand and his left. That's the Father's prerogative. The Father is in charge of the plan, and Jesus said that he came to do the Father's will that included servanthood and suffering before it included victory and glory. Jesus modeled 
following, bowing before, submitting to the will of the Father from the beginning to the end of his ministry, and he will do the same here. As Charles Spurgeon reminds us, eternal purposes are not to be changed at the request of ill-advised disciples. It is ours to suffer for Christ. It is his to choose how we will reign with Christ. The cup of suffering is arduous. That's Jesus' response to this question that shouldn't have been asked in the first place. So next we see an affronted group. Verse 24. And when they heard of it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now the situation is going to get a little dicey. It's going to get a little nasty. You see, they'd already argued among themselves, as we've said, about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus has to correct them. They'd argued about whether it would be Peter because he was the leader, or Matthew because he'd perhaps given up the most, or James and John who are said to be the disciples whom Jesus loved. And Jesus says, you got it all backwards. But they hear about what James and John have done, and they're indignant. The word can be translated as annoyance at what is perceived as unfair or wrong. It's as if they're saying, how dare you? Who do you think you are? And what's with hiding behind your mother anyway for such a request? So really all this reveals is that they were of the same disposition. They just didn't get to the question first. They wanted what James and John had asked for. They just hadn't asked for it yet. Because they've already had the discussion on who was going to be greater. They're angling for the same thing. They still needed to learn about what service looks like in the kingdom of heaven. And church history reminds us that all too often we still need to learn about what service looks like in the kingdom of heaven. We look at all of the challenges and difficulties and troubles that happen generation after generation, and we see the temptations and trials are the same. Greed and envy and jealousy and anger and jostling for the right positions. We only have to dig into the New Testament and we see that there are churches who need to have letters written to them because though they were Christians, they certainly didn't act like it. And the call goes out again and again. That's why we need to root ourselves in the gospel and attach ourselves to Christ and watch over ourselves and watch over one another so that we do not allow the seed of bitterness to take root and to grow to fruition. I think we can learn there's a popular meme that has gone around and it makes us smile a bit, but I think it nails it right on. It says that if the Apostle Paul knew about the American church, we would get a letter. So we need to be about the business of doing what we know we need to do. We have a daily need to confess our sins and to repent. We have a daily need to turn to Christ and to trust in Him because we have a living relationship with Him when we walk with Him. We have a daily need to cry out to Him, to show His mercy to us and to do the things that He has called us to do and to speak and to live and to love in a way that's honoring to Him and not to seek things ourselves. I like the example of the late South African preacher, Andrew Murray, who said this, the humble man feels no jealousy or envy. He can praise God when others are preferred and blessed before him. He can bear to hear others praised while he is forgotten because he's received the spirit of Jesus, who pleased not himself and who sought not his own honor. Therefore, in putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, he has put on the heart of compassion, kindness, meekness, 
long-suffering, and humility. Rather than being affronted by the success of others, we can enter into their joy. And to help us then, Jesus in point four will give us two views of authority. Two views of authority. But Jesus called them to him and said, and what follows, once again, Jesus is going to give us a very clear comparison between the values of the kingdom of heaven and the values of the kingdoms of men. And we are not to follow the models of world leaders and worldly leaders. We have other models that we are to follow. And so first, Jesus reminds them of the wrong type of leadership when he says, when greatness is not so great. Verse 25, he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Now, the word that is translated Gentiles here can also be translated as nations. What it really refers to is everything that's outside of the reflection of the kingdom of God. It reflects the way rulers in this world typically rule. They lord it over their people often as, as bullies or using manipulation or threats or tyranny. They want to show people that they're great and important. This is what the Romans ran after during the time of Jesus. They ran after these positions, and when they got them, they would be tyrannical towards those that were under their care. He goes on and says, the great ones exercise authority. And is it not the history of man to seek greatness for himself? Isn't that most of what happens in, in history, not just church history, but in history? People strive to make themselves look great. Look at who I am. Look at what I've done. Nobody does it the way I do. I'm really something. We even sell t-shirts that say I'm kind of a big deal. But the world is seeking the things like prestige and power and reputation and status. They honor themselves. They seek honor and not humility. They seek status and not sacrifice. They seek loftiness and not lowliness. That is the way of the world. And so in this context that we've looked at over the last couple of chapters of Matthew, we should say woe to the great ones because it is the little ones who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so in contrast then, when greatness is not so great, Jesus will give a second model of leadership, which is go down to go up. It shall not be so among you. The values of the kingdom of heaven are different than the values of the kingdom of men. The world runs after things that makes it seem great. It shall not be so among you. The world wants mighty men, strong men, boastful men, proud men. It shall not be so among you. Worldly leadership is not for the church. The world does not follow the patterns of success in other domains. It follows the pattern of success that has been traced by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who contrasts the great ones of the world with the little ones of faith. It is those with childlike faith who enter the kingdom. And that is the path that we are called to walk upon with him under his guidance. And now Jesus is going to give an even starker contrast. Instead of seeking to become great, they are to seek to become the lowest. So he says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And Jesus is going to make a word play here. Because in the first line here, whoever would seek to be great must be your servant. The word is diakonos. It's from where we get the word deacon. It means servant in the largest sense, but in that context, it meant one who was hired for service. 
in the home or in an enterprise. But he contrasts that with the very next statement when he goes one step further and says, but whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And it's a good translation of the text because the word is doulos, which means slave. It means one who serves at the pleasure of the master who bought him. A slave is one who goes into the service of the one who purchased him and gives direction on how he should live. And Jesus said that the first must be as the last, and the last shall be the first. It's the ultimate meaning of what he is saying. That the Christian is the one who seeks the benefit of others, not his own benefit. And the early church got this sort of, at least in part, because Paul and Peter and James in their letters all referred to themselves as doulos Christos, a slave of Christ. Years ago, the Salvation Army was holding an international convention, and their founder was General William Booth. But it was later in his earthly years, and he was unable to attend because of physical weakness. But he was able to send a cable of his convention message to those that attended. It consists of one word, others. That captures well the type of leadership that Jesus is pointing us to here the type of leadership that he commands and commends. But then Jesus, as the good teacher that he is, doesn't command us to do something that he himself is not willing to do or will not model. And so that brings us to our last point where we see Jesus, the great servant. Jesus, the great servant. Verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus takes the the Gentile model of leadership and of service and flips it on its head. And then he says, come and follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. He willingly came and gave himself in service to others. We notice that that he he came. Where did he come from? Well, he came from heaven from the glories and joys of heaven, to enter into space and time. He said, I've come to give life. I've come to seek and to save the lost. I've come to show what God is like. And so we'll see a threefold manifestation of the reason why he came just in this one verse. He came to serve. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He has just said that in order to be great, you must be a servant. In order to be first, you must be the slave. And he took on that position. He who was first, the highest above all, the one who returned back to his glory among heaven and is named as king of the kings and lord of the lords with the name that is above every name, took on the role of a servant as he washes their feet in the upper room, which was the lowest job there was. He came to seek and to save the lost, those that were far away from God. He came to give us life and life in its fullness. And so that's why we see that this request of this mother for her two sons to be given this rule of this reign and position of importance, it strikes such a wrong chord at this time in the story. After Jesus had already promised that he would suffer and die and be humiliated and be raised, at least when the Syrophoenician woman or the Canaanite woman came. She came and realized she wasn't worthy. And she said, just have mercy on my daughter. 
But here Salome comes and asks for greatness for her son. But the son of man, who has the highest place in the name above all, did not come to be served but to serve. He's our example. Secondly, as the son of man, Jesus came to sacrifice. The son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life. In our evangelical faith, we believe in the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Substitution because he gave his life for us that we might live. Substitution because he was our sin substitute. He took our sin and he died in our place. He paid the price that we might be set free. Atoning because it was his righteous life and his perfect sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God for the forgiveness of our sins, the one that brings us into a right standing before God. We who are in rebellion against him, we were who far away. In Christ, God looks down upon us, and through the sunglasses, S-O-N, of his son, he looks at us and sees that we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And he says, not guilty. Not only not guilty, he says, holy and forgiven. He came to save because he is the Savior. In our own evangelical free church statement of faith in Article 4, we say this. We believe that Jesus Christ is our representative and substitute. Shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. That's why we celebrate the Reformation. Salvation is by faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone for the glory of God alone. He came as a sacrifice and to give his life as a ransom. We know that to ransom is to pay the price to set one free from slavery. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint, oftentimes it took on the meaning of a payment to a deity. And certainly that's fitting with what we talk about what happened in Christ. The debt was paid to God the Father so that his honor is restored, so that sin is covered and forgiven, that his righteousness is preserved, as is his wrath. And when we were still in slavery to our sin, in bondage to our sin nature, in debt to the holiness of God, held in captivity by our selfish self-will that could only and did only seek the glory of ourselves, God in Christ set us free. And when he set us free, our hearts were free to worship him. Our minds were free to contemplate him. Our wills were set free to seek him and to love him and to serve him. That's the result of Jesus coming to serve and to be a sacrifice and to save and to give his life as a ransom for many. What a wonderful truth for many. He's the Savior of all who come to him. He's the Savior of all kinds of people. He's the Savior of Jew and Gentile and male and female and rich and poor and young and old. All who come to him and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's the Savior of the world, for there is no other way in this world in which you can be saved. For he made the payment for our sins with a specific purpose. In the early pages of Matthew, we're told that he came to save his people from their sins. 
And now here in Matthew 20, he tells us how he will do it. He will give his life as a ransom for many. And that, that wonderful language of for many is a fulfillment of prophetic language. We get it right out of Isaiah 53, where we're told that the Messiah will suffer, die, be buried, and rise in victory after paying the price for the sins of the many. Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 53, verses 10 to 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So here we have the will of the Father to crush the Son. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. There's the hope of the resurrection. There's the hope of believers. He dies knowing he will see those he will redeem. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied this week. When you spend time in the word of God and you recognize that you are in Christ, you are the result of the anguish of his soul, and he is satisfied over you and say, thank you, Father, for such a great gospel. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, justification by faith, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus clearly said that he was the Messiah, the one of Isaiah 53, as he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He came to die that we might live. As one commentator says, in that single substitutionary act of service, all the greatest needs of humanity were met as Jesus became a ransom for sin. His pain was for others' gain. He came to serve, to sacrifice, and to save. And that is the true model of true servanthood and the goal of all who belong to Christ today. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that we do not have to. He was condemned so that we will not be. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He bought us with a price so that as he purchased us and as his purchased possession, he will transform us so that we will walk in a manner worthy of his holy name. And in his act of servanthood, he provides the wellspring from which our service to others can take place. As we contemplate what Jesus has shown us in this passage, may the Lord give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Next week, we're going to get to Jerusalem. So a 16-kilometer or 15-mile trek going at an altitude of over 3,500 feet from Jericho up to Jerusalem. They're going to arrive. It'll be a time of celebration, but we'll see that it'll be a misguided celebration and not yet fully understood celebration. But until then, what are some lessons we can take away from today's sermon? Because of all Jesus did for us, we will not seek great things for ourselves, but for him who is worthy of all glory. 
because Jesus took the cup for us. We rejoice in our forgiveness and are ready to stand and to suffer for his cause. He told his disciples, will you take the cup? They said, we will. He said, yes, you will. And now we know what that cup means. Because Jesus shows us true servant leadership, we ask him to strengthen us to follow his example in our own lives and ministries. We need a model to follow. We need a mentor to guide. And we need power to lead. And Jesus is all of those to us. And because Jesus ransomed us, we will live in a manner worthy of his name and show us that we belong to him. As we go out this week, we contemplate the one who came to not be served but to serve and to give his life for many. Contemplate who he is for you and give thanks for the great salvation that is ours in Christ. Let us pray. Father, as we look into your word, we see the depths of your holiness and the depths of your love. We are ever more thankful for Jesus, who is the perfect fulfillment of both. We thank you that because Jesus is the Savior and he sends us out, we have an important ministry and mission to perform. So, Father, in these moments, would you lay open our hearts and show us what is there that needs to be tended to, dealt with, put away, and remind us of the great sacrifice for our forgiveness. And create in us a deeper attitude of delight and joy and gratitude for what you've done for us. And to walk with a lightness of spirit that knows that we are forgiven. And a joy for which we gladly go and serve you and serve others. Thank you, Father, for being our teacher. Guide us this week for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.